Who decides medicine prices? How are vaccines made? Have questions about the healthcare industry? Welcome to 19 Conversations. Today, we're asking Johanna Mercier, Chief Commercial Officer at Gilead, how is the pharmaceutical industry contributing to the fight against COVID-19? I'm Sue Saville. Thank you very much for joining us. Joanna, thank you very much for joining us. Gilead, of course, your company, the makers of Remdesivir, the first drug to be approved by the FDA to treat COVID-19, and now approved or authorized for emergency use in some 50 or more countries. Remdesivir, of course, is an inhibitor that disrupts the production then of the viral RNA, stopping the multiplication of the virus and originally developed against Ebola, against hepatitis C and trialed against SARS and MERS. So how was it that it was repurposed when COVID came along? It's a bit of a history here, Sue, so I appreciate the question and thank you for having me. I think that what's important to understand is actually this compound was studied actually more than 10 years ago for SARS and MERS, which are also other coronaviruses um, that emerged in the 2005 and 2009 timeframe. Um, When people refer to Ebola, we also looked at it for Ebola in the 2014-15 timeframe, both in vitro and then in vivo. Having said that, we didn't think that it had the same amount of efficacy. It had some efficacy in Ebola, but just not at the level um, versus some of the other drugs that were being studied. Um, as the cases started coming through and you know, awareness of these cases happened probably early January of this year, we started looking at what we had in our compounds, both inline products, as well as what we had in our research and development team portfolio. And one of the compounds um, was obviously remdesivir. We studied it to make sure that it had in vitro activity first and foremost. And then we looked at to see if it had in vivo activity versus COVID-19 per se. And, And that's where we saw positive results on both fronts. And as we were doing this, to be honest with you, we did a lot at risk because we we basically started manufacturing at risk. We started clinical trials at risk and the whole protocol development and whatnot. And that's basically been the story over the last 10 months of how we've gone from January to October to be in a position where we actually have enough supply to meet real-time global demand, which is pretty incredible when you think about the manufacturing timelines for this drug. So in a little bit more detail then, how does it actually work against COVID-19? So it's really exactly what you mentioned earlier. It's an antiviral medication. And so it is one that it really acts against the viral replication of this disease. And so like any antivirals, and obviously we're learning more as we go around COVID-19, not just Gilead, but all um, scientists and academia, as well as pharmaceutical companies. And there's a lot we still don't know, unfortunately, but I think together we can really make a difference. But what it is, is the intent is that antivirals usually work much earlier. It's beneficial for you to actually leverage an antiviral early in the disease before the replication is too ingrained into the body. And so what we found with this disease so far, and this is not something we understood last month, March, for example, but that the effects of remdesivir and probably other antivirals in the future are really beneficial for patients that are hospitalized early in their hospitalization. And what we found is the disease progresses, and then it's not so much the viral replication or the the virus that is going to increase the mortality rates that we've been seeing, unfortunately, but it's actually the inflammation. It's the cytokine storm that happens, and that's what then you need to, to make sure that you're treating. And that's why some of the 
you know, dexamethasone, for example, is being leveraged in later lines. And so what we're trying to figure out and educate physicians on with the data that we have today is really making sure that we leverage remdesivir at the right time. This is a hospitalized drug. This is meant to be used. It's an infusion um, for five different infusions over five days. And so therefore important that it's used at the right time for the right patients. So that's kind of the work that we're doing right now around education of the physicians and the hospital protocols. But isn't that going to be tricky in any health authority setting? Because getting people into hospital early to have this is going to be expensive. The medication is, uh, has got a price attached to it for whichever health reimbursement system you're using. So how can you make sure that the patients who actually need it will be in hospital early enough to receive it? I think when you get, um, when you're feeling unwell and you're struggling to breathe on your own, that's when patients are going into the hospital. And I think that's when remdesivir should be leveraged. I also think that, you know, Gilead is looking at, as well as many other companies are looking at this, but how do you make sure that they never have to go to the hospital? So how do you think about the outpatient setting, which I think is where you're going at, um, which I think is critical for us to find different ways, whether it's Obviously, vaccines are an important part of this this puzzle, but also different types of treatments. And so what we're doing at Gilead is looking at remdesivir in an outpatient setting, possibly an inhaled formulation or others, other formulations, as well as even just thinking about an outpatient setting like a nursing home or an infusion clinic to see if there's maybe opportunities there as well so that we don't put more pressure on the hospital care system. Remdesivir, though, has been controversial, as, as you'll be aware. There was the WHO solidarity trial, which with remdesivir, among three other drugs, said there was no measurable benefit in mortality or indeed the course of the disease. How do you square that with the results that you've been referencing? Yeah, so that's a great question, Sue. And I think that we, we really stand behind the data. And I don't think that the solidarity trial necessarily refutes the data that we've shown thus far. And so if I just speak to the data that we have, um, we have three randomized control clinical trials. And I think the data that's come through, whether it's the ACT-1 study that is versus placebo, or even the simple and moderate trials, I think the data that comes out of that is very consistent across those three trials. And that is that it provides a reduction in hospitalization by five days, and it also reduces the likelihood of disease progression, which I think is extremely powerful in light of the fact that there are so many hospitalized patients today. As you think about the solidarity trial, um, a couple of differences on this front, and that is that it's an open label trial, so it's not double-blinded. It is also one that the trial itself is very different than some of the other trials. And I do think that it'll be interesting to see the data because I think the more data we have, the more that we can learn. We've asked for this data. We haven't seen it as of yet. And I think that as we go forward, this trial was really meant originally to be an access trial. So the reason why Gilead participated and gave drug was because it was accessing in countries that Gilead wasn't able to access at that point in time. And so that's really why we did it. I think that that's been changed around a little bit in light of some of the the different press releases and the media around it. Um, but at the same time, that was really the primary intent of that trial. I think, you know, look forward to seeing it peer reviewed because it hasn't been peer reviewed yet versus the act one that has been in the New England Journal of Medicine. 
um, publication, I think early October. And so I think there's a couple of differences there that we'd like to, to look into a little bit more. And I think once we have the data, we'll be able to do that. But we feel very confident with our data and the consistency of our data through and through. And I think that's the key. And that's what's driven the number of approvals or authorizations that we've had in over 50 countries around the world. They say, don't they, that necessity is the mother of invention. Is a pandemic the inspiration for innovation in the pharmaceutical industry then? Yeah, I, I think innovation is kind of at the core of the pharmaceutical industry, to be honest with you. And, and so I don't think a pandemic accelerates that in any way, it accelerates our timing as to the pressures that are on to try to make a difference in this. But I do think it's partnerships and collaborations between the private industry as well as the, the government, academia, et cetera. So together, I think we can make a real difference here. And I think that as we think through what's to come, so not only do we need to be find solutions for this pandemic, but we also need to make sure we're ready for potentially next ones. And so I think that's what we just need to make sure that we continue to collaborate and learn from each other. I think there's an incredible learning. I mean, remdesivir was the first drug to kind of get through a lot of the barriers across different, you know, understanding the disease, et cetera, government barriers, pricing barriers, et cetera. And I think those are the kind of learnings that we should share more broadly to make sure that as future emerging treatments come to market, that we can help other organizations make sure that you accelerate access and affordability to patients as quickly as possible. But, but looking ahead uh, to future needs and indeed to the needs at the moment, you talked about trying to ramp up production. How do you do that with something like remdesivir, which has a typical lead time of nine, nine to 12 months? How could you actually increase production to the level that's needed? Yeah, so that's a very good point. So as you think about where we started in January, we had about 5,000 treatment courses of remdesivir. And that was because of the work that we had done for Ebola five years back. And 5,000 treatment courses doesn't go very far. And to your point, the manufacturing timeframe, it's a very complex manufacturing process. And, and some of the steps are actually linear in nature. So you can't do them in parallel. So you have to do them sequentially. And so there was the teamwork, the product drug manufacturing teamwork, 24-7 to basically build the plane as they were flying it. And I really mean that because the manufacturing timeframe went from nine to 12 months down to six months. And that's pretty amazing. And that's why we're in the situation that we're in today, where as of a few weeks ago, we've announced that our global supply finally meets the real-time global demand. And so we're finally in a position where we're not managing and triaging depending on the incidence and the epidemiology of each country. We're really making sure that um, the needs are served and now we can do so across the world. So a couple of steps we're taking obviously to do just that. We had to expand our footprint. We had to make sure that we had a global footprint in nature as well. So we have a couple of, um, of sites actually or contract manufacturing operations that are in Europe, such as Portugal, Switzerland, Italy, which has really helped that we have 40 contract manufacturing operations around the world now just for remdesivir to make sure that as we move forward for different steps of the process, that as we move forward, depending where this pandemic goes, because it's very volatile, as you can appreciate, and very dynamic, we want to make sure we're at the ready for that. And, and so I do believe that the there's really an opportunity to make sure that leveraging all of these partners, and, and we even have some industry peers that have helped us out as well, like Pfizer. And so leveraging all of these partners has been what's gotten us to where we are today. And the last piece I would just add, Sue, is, is the fact that we also thought about 
a global footprint in access. And what I mean by that is not only in the developed countries, but also the the lower income, middle income countries. And what we did there was, as we've done before in HIV and HCV, we've opened up and gave an exclusive voluntary license to remdesivir for nine generic manufacturers across different countries in India, Pakistan, even in Egypt. And the intent of that is to making sure that patients in those markets, it covers about 127 countries, had access to remdesivir and was affordable for them. So you've taken all these steps so far, but it looks like the pandemic isn't going to go away anytime soon. But what, what steps are next? What does Gilead Sciences want to do next? So I think, you know, we continue to make sure that we can continue to develop and maybe accelerate the development of remdesivir in other formulations like we talked about earlier, um, potentially getting it out to the outpatient setting so that we don't put so much burden on the hospital system or take some of it off depending on the situation. We're also looking at combination therapies. I think that um, there's real opportunities to combine this drug and you've seen some studies come out, um, one with a JAK inhibitor. There's other studies going on right now as well to just kind of look at what's the ideal scenario And is it a combination or is it a step approach, right? Depending on the timing. So more to come on that front. And of course, continuing to um, put a lot of investment in our virology and infectious disease portfolio, because we do believe that as much as we want to continue to drive and continue to be part of the solution for this COVID-19 pandemic, we also believe that we need to be ready for the next one. And what about on a personal level? I understand you've been with Gilead only a year or so. Challenging times. How's the last year been for you? Um, yeah, it's been about 15 or 16 months or so now. And I have to tell you, it's been a roller coaster ride, um, but an incredible one. It's exhilarating to be in the middle of something that you can actually make a difference. The number of patient stories and emails and phone calls that we have gotten from patients that got remdesivir that didn't think, you know, whether it's from a family member or the patient themselves, they're really moving. And this is why we do what we do in the pharmaceutical industry. This is what what it's all about. And, And I think for me, that's super energizing and motivating to keep pushing and keep doing more to find solutions for patients and their families and give a little bit more hope just in light of, you know, the fact that it's quite challenging for a lot of folks and their families. And so many people have been impacted directly or indirectly through this. And and so for me, that's been incredible. And the last thing I would say is what I've also seen at Gilead is a team come together. We're a small company. We're about 12,000 employees. And every single employee directly or indirectly has been a part of this solution. And, And I think that's extremely powerful. As the year draws to an end, people start to think about their New Year's resolutions and what they hope to get. Have you any thoughts, any predictions or any special hopes for the following year? It's, uh, I'm sure, probably in line with many others, but I do hope, I do hope there are vaccines that come to market. I hope that um, antibodies or other types of treatments also are successful. I think the more um, options that we have moving forward, in addition to remdesivir, is what's best for patients and what's best to make sure that we can get through this pandemic. And I don't know if I would call it back to normal, but a new normal anyway, um, in the near future. And uh, hopefully that's in the next six to nine to 12 months, I guess, um, being realistic in everything that needs to happen to get that done. But I, I do think that's going to be the uh, my New Year's resolution. And, and the last piece on a personal note is, 
is my two kids are home um, from school. One should be in college, but he's doing college in my living room. And as I'm sure many others can relate to those stories, and I hope for them as well, they get an opportunity to to get back in a, a social educational system um, that makes sense for them, um, especially at this age. Thank you. I'm sure many people would echo those thoughts and those hopes. Joanna, thank you very much for joining us on this podcast. And thank you very much to everyone who's been listening to 19 Conversations. If you liked this podcast, please click on the subscribe button to be the first to know when we release our next episode. And please leave a rating and a review. Until our next episode, we'd invite you to join the conversation on Twitter using the hashtag questions inspire solutions. Thank you all and goodbye for now. Thank you.